You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Buggy, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our Quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Alexander, Christine, Isaac, Jonathan, Lydia, Shep, and Versteeg, as well as our new Commodores, Just a Guy and Buggy the Clown. And I'd like to wish Buggy the Clown a belated, Happy birthday. Thanks to the recording and release schedule around here, I know it's late, but I hope you had a good one. And also, on that note, Buggy the Clown, I want everybody to know that I have finally broken down and decided to watch One Piece. I'm not traditionally an anime fan, so this is kind of a new experience for me, but thanks for all the advice you folks gave me on what to watch, where to begin, and what I should read and I will let you know my thoughts on it in the very near future. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Before we get started today, I thought I might take a moment to chat with all of you. As some of you may have noticed, we've got ads now. I've been getting approached for some time now by a variety of different companies and organizations to start monetizing the show through advertising, and usually I just ignore it. Recently, though, at the end of 2021, I was approached by a new podcast network, the Airwave Podcast Network. They're new, and I took a look at some of the shows they've got on their roster, and while I can't speak for the shows I haven't listened to, their history lineup, many of which I have, are all pretty great. The show that really convinced me to join up was Ben Franklin's World, a show that I enjoy and respect. 
Beyond that, they're building something of a subgroup of what you might call scoundrels and scallywags. Mobsters and Old West outlaws and pirates. I felt like I fit in pretty well there. They're a good group of people, and as far as creative control is concerned, nothing changes. I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about, so that works out for me. And a little extra money in my pocket never hurts. If you're one of our patrons on Patreon, well, nothing's going to change at all. You should have access to your own personal RSS feed that will remain ad-free. By the by, I hope everyone had a fantastic holiday season. And now, with all of that out of the way, we're going to be jumping in to a pirate who rivals Thomas II and Henry Every, perhaps even surpasses them in his fame and in his infamy, Captain William Kidd. This is episode 240, No Pray or Pay. Last time, the pirate king, Henry Every, had just disappeared from the world forever. But we need to remember that while we all know that Henry Every will never be seen again, no one in the world at the time knew that. Aside from a very select group of a few people, no one even knew that the fancy had arrived at Nassau. For the vast majority of the world, Henry Every and his pirates were still at large, and everyone assumed that he would eventually get caught. So, in the episodes to come, I want you to remember that Henry Every here is Jack the Ripper, or D.B. Cooper, or Osama Bin Laden. Well, actually, that's a bad example. We eventually got Bin Laden. How about the, uh, the Zodiac Killer? I'm trying to think of notorious fugitives here. The point is, though, everyone was still looking for Henry Every, actively searching for him. While we know that the manhunt would ultimately be futile, it was still very much on. And all of that is going to be very, very relevant to Captain William Kidd's life in just a few short months. When we last left Captain Kidd, he was in New York City. You'll recall that he was the new captain of the Adventure Galley. An Adventure Galley was a fine ship, I guess. You know, compared to the Fancy, well, we're not going to see another ship like the Fancy until we get to the Queen Anne's Revenge, and even then, I don't know that she surpasses. But Adventure Galley, remember, was not a pirate ship. She was a pirate hunting ship. And for that purpose, she was pretty well suited. Adventure Galley was a galley. That means that she had oars, an entire lower deck devoted to oars and oarsmen. Now that does mean that the adventure galley was a bit slower. Even with all of the oars up, she would never be as sleek as a frigate or a sloop. But it also meant that the adventure galley could move at speed without the wind, or even if the opportunity arose against the wind. She was fast enough to keep up the chase in most cases, and when the wind died down, she would always be able to catch up. Beyond that, the oars gave the adventure galley a specific advantage in firing positions. You know, they would be able to take a position relative to the ship they were chasing, in which that ship could not fire at them, but they could fire all day long at the pirates. It was a fine ship for pirate hunting. 
Now, the fancy would probably give her problems, at least in her prime. But that wasn't officially who Captain Kidd was supposed to be after. In that letter of Mark, William Kidd had been charged by God, King, and Country to hunt down Thomas II, who was dead by this point, John Ireland, Thomas Wake, who was also dead, and William May. Now, by the time Captain Kidd actually got down to the business of sailing after pirates, Henry Every was public enemy number one. He was assumed to be added to the roster. But of course, by the point he actually did get to sailing, the fancy was dismantled in the port at Nassau and Henry Every had disappeared. After Captain Kidd bought his ship in London and collected his letter of mark, he gathered a crew of the best that London had to offer. Now, these weren't the best of the best, you know. This was 1696. England was at war, so the best of the best were all sailing for the Navy, but it was the best that was available at the time, so a fine crew nonetheless. But we'll also recall that all of the skilled crewmen on board the adventure galley were taken from that crew before she even departed English waters. A navy ship showed up and commandeered all of these sailors for service in the Royal Navy. Now, this happened due to two major factors. First, William Kidd made a bit of a nuisance of himself in London and was heard very vocally and loudly insulting the navy. But second, there were the political issues at play here. Now, I don't want to delve too deeply into politics in England in 1695, at least not yet, but it was complicated. King William called a new parliament in 1695, and in fact, he was compelled by law to do so. An act of parliament back in 1692 had decreed that the king must dissolve parliament every three years and call new elections. And that's pretty great as far as things like democratic progress goes, because the king was no longer in charge of parliament. But it does mean that politics as we know them today, with all of the deadlocking and power-grabbing and corruption that we know and love, well, those politics were going to begin to play a real role in the story of pirates and piracy. It can perhaps be felt first here in 1695. See, the Whigs were divided in 1695. Most of Captain Kidd's backers, those who had signed on to his little venture, well, they were majority Whigs. They were pro-war, pro-William, just on board with everything, but the admiral allegedly behind requisitioning those seamen that had been on board Adventure Galley, well, he was a Whig, but he was what they called a country Whig, and an opponent to the Whig majority. The end result here, though, is that Captain Kidd had to cross the Atlantic with not the best that London had to offer, but the dregs of London and the Navy. When the Navy did eventually replace those sailors on board the Adventure Galley, they were replaced with old, scurvy-ridden drunks, men that the Navy did not want. And honestly, neither did Captain Kidd, but he didn't have much choice here. So Adventure Galley limped home to New York. 
Now, of course, New York would normally have been a great place to take on crewmen for any kind of privateering voyage. It was a home to all of the pirates and privateers of the Atlantic world, right? But there were, again, two major issues. First, most of the privateersmen and pirates that normally called New York home were, right here in 1695, very far from home. Most of them were already in the Indian Ocean with other privateering cruises, or they were hiding out after all of those piracies the previous autumn. They had been members of Thomas II or Henry Avery's crew, but they weren't in New York. So, it was slim pickings in the spring and summer of 1696. So many men who might have sailed with Captain Kidd were in Madagascar or Carolina or Brazil or anywhere that they might be able to hide out. But even more important was William Kidd himself. He was offering a privateering voyage, and that was usually a lucrative job opportunity that any sailor worth his salt would jump at. But Captain Kidd's voyage did not have the same kind of benefits package that most privateers offered. You know, those privateers here in the Nine Years' War were usually authorized to attack the French. But William Kidd was not. His letter of mark ordered him only to hunt pirates. But that's not to say William Kidd couldn't get away with it. In fact, on the voyage to America, the adventure galley had attacked what they called a French banker, which actually meant a small coastal fishing craft, that's the kind of bank in question, not a money-lending operation. But Kidd could, if he so chose, attack the French, from time to time. But his job was to hunt pirates, and that, well, that's kind of the opposite of what all of these New York privateers were looking for. What they really wanted was a ship that was licensed to attack the French, but was certainly willing to attack Mughal shipping, or even, should the opportunity arise, Dutch or English shipping. They were looking for pirate ships, ships that offered booty and plunder that would offer them a ton of money. But, you know, they would take an actual privateer ship because they did offer booty and plunder of their own. But William Kidd was neither. Now, of course, most self-respecting seamen would accept a job that offered a decent wage, but William Kidd was not only not offering booty and plunder, he wasn't offering a wage at all. You know, this privateering job had the usual terms, no prey, no pay, but without the usually assumed premise that they would definitely find some prey, one way or another. If all the prey were pirates, well... That was not an excellent business opportunity. So many a New York sailor began to describe Adventure Galley and Captain Kidd as a voyage offering no prey or pay. After a month or two, virtually no one had bit at Kidd's offer. But in August 1696, suddenly he began to attract sailors, and exactly how he did so is still a matter of some debate.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There's a cache of documents uncovered in New York City in the early 20th century, and they suggest that William Kidd was honest, or at least mostly honest, in his desire to recruit a crew for non-piratical privateering and pirate hunting. They suggest that he never intended to go on the account, but William Kidd, in the summer of 1696, did begin recruiting pirates. According to some of Captain Kidd's defenders, or his apologists, including Captain Charles Johnson in A General History of the Pirates, William Kidd was duped. It's a story that was lifted almost whole cloth by Robert Louis Stevenson when he wrote Treasure Island. In Treasure Island, it was Squire Trelawney that recruited an eager, one-legged ship's cook named Long John Silver. And suddenly, the ship Hispaniola had no trouble finding crewmen just dying to sign up. Exactly who William Kidd's version of Long John Silver was in this version of the story, well, that changes from telling to telling. Usually, though, it's a pirate named John Brown. John Brown was a long-time rover, and William Kidd knew He was a pirate. He knew it better than most. John Brown had been a sailor on board the Blessed William. Back in 1688 and 1689, when Captain Kidd commanded the Blessed William as a privateer captain, John Brown had been one of his crewmen. John Brown was aboard when Robert Culliford and William May led a mutiny against William Kidd. And by all accounts, John Brown was an eager participant. He would go on to sail on board the pirate ship Jacob under Edward Coates when, eventually, May, Culliford, and Coates sailed alongside Thomas II on their first Red Sea expedition in 1693. That's the same expedition on which Robert Culliford was arrested by Mughal authorities on the coast of India. When William May and Edward Coates did eventually return to New York with Hold's 
pretty full of plunder, Edward Coates gave the ship Jacob to Governor Benjamin Fletcher in return for a blanket pardon, for himself and all of his men, including John Brown. Now, William Kidd knew all of this. Remember, he was a magistrate in New York and a friend of Governor Fletcher. He was probably there when Fletcher made the decision. Now, William May would go on to sail with Thomas II and Henry Avery on their expedition, but instead of going with those pirates, John Brown elected to stay in New York. He was going to enjoy his sea chest. And it lasted him about two years. Richard Zacks writes in The Pirate Hunter, quote, Brown had made the big score, but then gambled or humped it all away. Keep in mind, though, that John Brown, when he returned from that first expedition, had enough to buy a modest piece of property somewhere in rural New York and to start a business or a nice little family farm or any of a dozen different choices, but he didn't choose any of those. Instead, he gambled or drank or humped his money away, and when it ran out, he signed up with Captain William Kidd. Most of the pirates who are about to sign up for the adventure galley can be traced back to John Brown in one form or another. We're going to meet a lot of them over the weeks to come, but most notably today, I want to mention a young man named William Moore. William Moore was also a very well-known pirate. Now, he missed out on that first expedition in 1693 because he was in a Carolina prison, for acts of piracy, and he missed out on that 1695 expedition with Henry Avery because he was in a Barbados prison for acts of piracy. He wasn't very good at getting away with it. But none of those offenses were ever bad enough to get him hanged. Usually the government just found him suspicious thanks to a surprising amount of money for such a haggard and disreputable-looking individual. So they would seize his funds throw him into jail, and let him out in a few months' time. Now, John Brown signed on as pilot of the Adventure Galley, an important position, but he knew the job of privateering, and he knew the Indian Ocean, which was very important. He knew where pirates congregated, where the winds would carry them. He was really the best choice for the job, except for the whole he was a pirate. William Moore signed on as a gunner, and most of the other pirates served in similarly dangerous and violent jobs on board. You know, their job was to do pirate stuff. And as we said, John Brown is often painted as the Long John Silver figure, but Captain Kidd was no Squire Trelawney. He wasn't duped into hiring a nefarious pirate. He knew who he was hiring full well. He knew who John Brown was and William Moore and all the scallywags. He knew they were pirates. The question is, though, the question before the court, did William Kidd sign them on with the promise of piratical plunder, or did he think that he could keep them in line? Older sources tend to have one take, but the modern consensus seems to be that William Kidd really did think they would tow the line on board Adventure Galley, that he, in particular, had what it took to make the pirates tow the line. He didn't. And it's important to remember here that the majority of the crew were not pirates. 
There were a few, but there were even more men on board the adventure galley that William Kidd knew to be loyal men. The most loyal of these was William Kidd's brother-in-law, Samuel Bradley. Now, Samuel was only 21 in 1696. He was a young man, but he and Kidd were really family here. Of course, they were family. They were brothers-in-law, and Samuel introduced William to his wife, Sarah Bradley, but they do seem to have been close regardless of that. Very much a little brother for Captain Kidd. And William Kidd had at least 13 others that were loyal friends in New York. He had more than that, but 13 are going to stay loyal. So you've got roughly equal parts loyal friends and pirates. That amounts to maybe 30 men, all told. The rest of the crew, though, was neither. A fair number of them were just career sailors, men who knew the job. They'd served on privateers before, absolutely. They'd served on merchant vessels and fishing ships and all manner of craft. They knew knots and rigging and wind and water. They were just professionals, and for the most part, honest. But then you've got the landlubbers. There were a decent number of young men and boys that ranged between about 12 and 20, who were signed up for the adventure galley even though they had no seafaring experience. Now I say they were signed up, not that they did sign up. A few of these men did sign up of their own accord. Take, for example, Benjamin Franks. Franks came from a prosperous Jewish family in New York, a family of jewelers that also ran the main goldsmithy in town. Now, they were an important and influential family. All the best people, including Sarah Bradley Kidd, got their jewelry from the Franks. But Benjamin was a bit of a black sheep in the family, and more or less he had been kicked out, so despite a complete lack of seafaring experience, he signed up with William Kidd. There were also John Burton and William Wakeman, a pair of journeyman cobblers in New York that put their shoemaking business on hold so they could join up. It was a rare opportunity, financially speaking. But most of the landsmen on board Adventure Galley were not there of their own free will. Kidd let it be known that the masters of any indentured servants who signed up their servants would be paid fully half the winnings of that servant ahead of time. Now this was dirty. Some of those servants, more than a few, were almost done with their indenture. You know, they had a couple of months left, and then their masters gave them away and effectively extended their indentureship by over a year. If the profitability of this investment was about to run out, why not make a quick bit of profit here at the end? What's more, though... These indentured servants were not necessarily to be paid. Kid would pay their half of the expected winnings up front, but the agreement usually read that these men would be paid their half of the share only if they proved their worth. William Kidd, in these shady deals, secured a fair amount of what was essentially slave labor— Men who didn't need to be paid, but he did so for a much cheaper price than he would have paid for actual slaves. This group included men like Saunders Douglas, 
who was a teenage servant to Michael Hawden, a venter in New York, who sold him off. There was Patrick Drimmer, Micah Evans, and Samuel Kennels, who were rented by their master from Philadelphia. And there were a few boys on board as well, young boys, serving as apprentices mostly. There was Robert Lamley, a 12-year-old boy, serving under the cook, a Beale Owen. And this was a common position for ship's boys on their first voyages. The cook on board needs someone to do the prep work, and a cook's apprentice can learn the ropes, literally speaking, learning the ropes, while being unable to really screw anything up too badly aside from maybe burning the dinner. But there was also William Jenkins, a 14-year-old boy who served under the chief mate, George Bolin. Bolin was another of those friendly allies to William Kidd, both on board and in New York. And the actual role of the officers is unclear here, at least to me it is. A chief mate is usually the same role as a first mate, that is to say a second in command, but on most privateer ships and on all pirate ships, the quartermaster is second in command. And here on the adventure galley, the quartermaster was Hendrik van der Hule, one of only two men of African ancestry on board, but I can't decipher who actually outranked who here. And of course, the makeup and mission of the crew is going to change partway through the voyage, so it's possible that it started one way and then flipped halfway through. The third ship's boy of note was Richard Barleycorn, also 14 years old, who served as Captain Kidd's apprentice. And, you know, we call him an apprentice, but he was a gopher. He was running messages and taking orders around and getting William Kidd's dinner, just Jon Snow serving the Lord Commander kind of stuff. Now, there have been a lot of names here, and we actually know the names of every sailor on board, but for most of those men, that's all we know. You know, we have their admission on the ship's roll, and that's it. This is the only time that those names intersect the historic record, but we know about all of those indentured servants for a very good reason. Their masters kept records of this financial transaction. We know about those cobblers for the same reason, but most of the men on board were men of little means and no property to speak of. They don't appear on tax rolls or land deeds or usually in marriage certificates or birth records, unless they were notorious for other reasons, such as already being known pirates. For most of the crew, nobody knows anything about them. But there are a few other notable exceptions to this rule. We could take, for example, Darby Mullins, an Irishman born in Londonderry in 1661. Mullins was kidnapped from his home in Ireland by English sailors, and this was a particular type of sailor who specialized in taking young Irishmen from their homes and selling them in the colonies. This was a thriving business back in the 1660s. Darby Mullins, as were many other young men in his position, were sold off in Port Royal, Jamaica. He worked as an indentured servant for four years, and upon his release he took a job as a dock worker until, in 1692, Port Royal was destroyed. 
there was that devastating earthquake. But Darby Mullins was one of the first to open up a tavern in the newly founded Kingston, and apparently he did well enough to marry and buy a little property, but a few years later, for reasons we don't know, he and his wife relocated to New York City, and shortly after arriving in New York City, Darby's wife grew ill and died. This was 1696. We can imagine that Darby Mullins was devastated. He was 35 years old when he sold his house and signed up with Captain William Kidd. This was the crew. You know, they weren't all hardened pirates, they weren't even all sailors. But you've got this very large number of disenfranchised men, of angry indentured servants, of black sheep, of people who had lost everything. You've got impressionable young men, you've got a quartermaster of African ancestry who was very likely disrespected and perhaps even abused by the very men he was supposed to oversee. These men were not pirates, not yet, but they were exactly the kind of men who might just listen when someone like a John Brown began to talk about mutiny. Next time, we're going to discuss the Adventure Galley's last days in New York and her first days at sea. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has mentioned us online or recommended us to your friends or family. You all make this possible. Thank you. This is, as we discussed at the top of the episode, an airwave media podcast. If you'd like to check out some of those other fine shows I mentioned, such as Benjamin Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight